As the leaders of the Americas prepare to gather in Los Angeles on June 6th for their ninth regional summit, the White House has announced it will exclude Cuba, arguing the communist-led country doesn't meet the required democratic standards. U.S.-Cuba relations have been hostile ever since Fidel Castro's 1959 revolution. In 2016, President Barack Obama became the first U.S. president to visit the island in almost nine decades calling his trip a, quote, historic opportunity to leave the Cold War behind. But then, under President Donald Trump, all opportunities were lost. In January 2021, the White House designated Cuba as a, quote, state sponsor of terrorism and accused it of malign interference in Venezuela and the rest of the Western Hemisphere. And now, under President Joe Biden, relations remain tense as this administration accuses Havana of human rights violations against Cubans who protested against their government last year. This amid the largest exodus of undocumented Cuban migrants to the United States in more than 40 years. So what's next for the two neighboring countries? I'm Lucia Newman in Havana, and I've come to the Cuban capital to meet with the man in charge of U.S. affairs. The Deputy Foreign Minister of the Republic of Cuba, Carlos Fernandez de Cosillo, talks to Al Jazeera. Mr. Fernandez de Cosillo, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. There's a lot to talk about, but I'd like to start with the surprise announcement by the Biden administration that apparently it does, does not want to invite Cuba to the upcoming Summit of the Americas. What does that imply? Well, we have said that a summit that excludes some countries of the region, it's an exclusive uh, summit. It's not, a, not an inclusive summit. It's a summit that uh, ch chooses on a whim which countries could attend and which could not, based on the attempt to perhaps have a photo opportunity of showing a, 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 that you had a meeting that, that could be politically convenient. But if you're going to have the summit, if you're going to spend money on it, if you're going to go to the trouble of convening heads of state and government, it would be to discuss the difficult problems that we have in our region, which are difficult. Some of them are controversial. And for the summit to be successful, the useful thing to do and the fair approach to take would be to have everybody in, have everybody put forward their points of view, even if you don't like them, if you're going to host a summit. But what was Cuba planning to bring to the table in that summit, which is supposed to emphasize the immigration problems that are afflicting the region? I mean, there is an unprecedented exodus of people from all over the region, including Cuba, at this moment. There's an old saying that if development does not truly begin to trickle south, it will end up creeping north. Hmm. Underdevelopment will be creeping north. And therefore, if you do not solve the economic and social problems of the region, it is very difficult for the northern countries, in this case the United States, to stop the flow of migration, legal or illegal. This is already recognized by the leaders of the United States. The president, the vice president, several me members of the government have said that to address the issue of migration, you need to tackle the problems, the economic and social problems of the region with cooperation, with investment, with technical and financial assistance. Yet, in the case of Cuba, the official policy and the policy that is being applied is one of an economic blockade. 
aimed at making life as difficult as possible, as unbearable as possible, for the people of Cuba, to purpose, with, with the purpose of diminishing the standard of living of the Cuban population. That in itself is an impulse for people to migrate to the developed countries, above all, the United States, which has a standing policy of invitation. The United States stimulates migration, both regular, but above all, irregular migration. And a Cuban that arrives to the, Cuban, to the US border, as a difference to the migrant from any other country in the world, will have a privileged uh, attitude by the US authorities. It, it has a high percentage of possibilities of being accepted. That doesn't happen to anyone else from the region or from other, other parts of the world. The figures are over 90% of them, if they do reach the border, they end up being accepted in the United States. And therefore, the Cuban migrant thinks that if he does reach the border, he has a high possibility, higher than anyone else, of being accepted. Now, if you add to that the fact that since 2017, the US shut down the processing of migrant visas in Havana, in their embassy in Havana, and it doesn't grant legal avenues for Cubans to migrate to the United States, then the individual that has a depressed economic condition, an invitation to go to the United States, and no legal avenue to migrate, there's a great possibility of, for that person to take an illegal, irregular, disorderly manner to enter into the United States. That's the problem we face in the case of Cuba. I'm going to ask you more about the causes of that migration in a minute, but you've just come back from Washington where you headed the first official face-to-face -face talks between the Cuban and U.S. government in four years, precisely about migration. What, if anything, was accomplished? Uh, what was accomplished was there's a, there was a good level of discussion on the causes of this migration, the issues that needed to be solved, and a mutual recognition that the agreements that exist, the, agreement, the, the bilateral agreements on migration that exist between the two countries, I'm talking about basically 1994, 95, and 2017, should be implemented fully, comprehensively, not in a selective manner. There was a mutual understanding in that and a commitment to implement those agreements. But what does that mean specifically? It means granting, basically, granting visas in Cuba to begin to process migration visas again in Havana in a meaningful manner for the United States to fulfill its commitment of a minimum of 20,000 visas a year for Cuban migrants. That has not been accomplished or fulfilled since 2017. And therefore, you have an accumulation of Cubans that could have migrated, 60 to 80,000 that could have migrated, that found no legal way to, to get to the United States and to, and to fulfill their goal, which is to move to the United States. So that's an important step. And there was agreement that that needed to happen. How and when and with which speed is something still to be seen but there was a commitment to reestablish the migratory processing in Havana and to, again, reach the point of 20,000 visas a year. And I understand that in exchange for this, Cuba would agree to accept deported Cubans, Cubans that the United States does not agree to allow to stay or considers ineligible for residence. That's part of the commitments of, of the agreement of January 2017, that we would receive people that upon arrival in the United States are considered not to be acceptable and the U.S. government decides to deport them back to Cuba. We agreed to take them back. We fulfilled that part of our agreement until, until the pandemic began, the COVID pandemic. 
but we, we understand that as part of our commitment, what we said, the agreements need to be implemented comprehensively, not selectively. Not selectively. As we all know, uh, Cuba is undergoing a huge exodus of its citizens right now, the largest since the 1980s, actually. Why do you think that is? There's a combination of factors. One is the difficult economic conditions of the country that are the result of an economic crisis, the pandemic, and also a, polit a policy from the United States, its official policy, deliberately aimed at making life difficult for the people of Cuba. The U.S. has an overwhelming influence around the world. So the effect on the Cuban population is not only that that directly comes from not trading or not receiving any financial uh, activity with the United States, it is the impact of the United States around the world. Financial institutions that do not want to engage with Cuba because of, of fear of the consequences they could have if they engage in trade or commercial activity with Cuba, of trade organizations, of, of companies that used to export to Cuba and don't want to export anymore, or companies that refuse to import Cuban, product, to import Cuban products because of the trade relationship that they have with the United States. The capacity of Cuba to conduct its logical international trade or, or economic relations are difficult and, and face obstacles because of U.S. pressures around the world. And this is not something new. It is within the U.S. law. The Helms-Burton law forces the U.S. government. It's an obligation of the U.S. government, according to that law, to pressure the governments of other countries for them to uh, severe the economic relationship with Cuba. Well, does that so mean that's that part of the problems that we have. We also have, as I said again, what the U.S. calls the pull effect. The, an invitation by not fulfilling their agreements. Part of their agreements in 2017 was not to accept any more Cubans that reached their borders. They stopped doing that and they started accepting Cubans. In March of this year, the U.S. accepted 32,000 Cubans in a month. 32,000 Cubans in a month. Mm. Illegal migrants that just reached the border of the United States. Cubans that want to migrate and hear that news mm. and learn about it, they say there's an avenue there. There's a way to enter the United States if we use the illegal channel. And yet Panama, which is the, the, practically the only way out of here to get to another country through Copa Airlines, so you can get, for example, to uh, Nicaragua, which does not require a visa for Cubans to make it north, uh, has just implemented or, uh, the demand for a transit visa. And your government says that that is from pressure that is the caused by pressure from the United States to, to stop the Cubans from coming. So it seems to be a contradiction. Which the United States does not deny. What we are saying is that this is very unfair to Cubans. Cubans that want to migrate, that want to leave the country, some of them are just travelers. They don't want to migrate. But now they are demanded, and this is a discriminatory treatment to Cubans that the rest of Latin Americans don't have. They're demanding a transit visa to go to Panama including Cubans that have a residence in other countries of the region, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, they require a transit visa to go through Panama. That is a dis discriminative treatment of Cubans, the result of pressures by the United States government that the U.S. government has not uh, denied. This exodus, you just said yourself, more than 30,000 Cubans have left in just one month. It accelerated 
after the unprecedented, though very short-lived uprising that took place last year in this country. And I think the only way you can describe it is that the reaction from the government to those who went out onto the streets to demand economic changes, political changes, was very harsh. We're talking about prison sentences of up to 30 years for people who threw a stone or broke a window. I would disagree with your characterization of what happened. First, one of the basic reasons that is pushing migration is people saw that the policy of the Biden government is exactly the policy of the Trump government, which is maximum pressure toward Cuba. So they see that there are economic opportunities in the country. Under the great power and the great influence of the United States, it will continue, and that their conditions in Cuba will continue to be difficult. Now, your characterization of the government reaction to what happened on July 11th, you're saying harsh uh, sentences Presences. and yes. Let's, how many people went out in the street on that day? 10,000, 15,000? A few hundred were called into question, detention, or prosecuted, meaning that it is wrong to say that people were punished for peacefully protesting because the thousands that went out never saw the inside of a police station, never had to talk with a policeman. They just protested and that was it. The sentences, you qualify them harsh for, throat, for breaking a window. You don't see any 30-year sentence for anyone for throwing a rock and breaking a window. You don't know that. Now, on that day, there were vehicles that were burnt. There were attacks on police stations. There were attacks to a pediatric clinics. There was vandalism. All of that in Cuba is illegal. Anyone who, who conducts that activity in Cuba must expect that they will have to face the impact of the law and, and that they cannot uh, live with impunity by doing acts of that nature. Well, I've heard different stories from the relatives of the people who are now in prison, young people in the vast majority, 19-year-olds who are in prison for 20 years. But let me, I, you, you make me remember something. But excuse me, you must have spoken with the relatives of most of the imprisoned people around the world, including the United States. And do you take for granted what they say about their No, but there were photos. Families and, and relatives. There were photos and films, but... There were photos of cars being burnt. There were photos of police stations being attacked. There were, there were photos of aggression against civilians. There, was, there were photos of vandalism, of people stealing objects. That's 30 not, years in that's prison? That's not peaceful protesting. I didn't say they were all peaceful, but let me, what, what you remind me of is something that President Fidel Castro once said when there were troubles here before. He said, hay que hacerle un escarmiento. We have to set an example. Is that, is that what these sentences meant to do? To, to t send a message to Cubans that they could not go out massively onto the streets to protest? That, that is a huge fabrication, fabrication coming out of the U.S. government that first began to say that the protests were for weeks when evidence showed that it wasn't. So, no, I cannot uh, say that this was to, to set an example. This was the implementation of the law in Cuba, that people cannot do illegal activity and cause harm with impunity. Any country would react in that way. In Latin America, in Latin America, where there has not been any campaign by the U.S. government, there are people whose eyes have been taken out. In Chile, in Colombia, in, Colum in, in some of these countries that have been dozens of massacres within one year. None of that happened in Cuba, none of that. And do you say that when that occurs in the Latin American countries, this is to set an example, or is this a qualification only for Cuba? 
Cuba has, of course, been at odds with the United States for 61 years. And the embargo, uh, blockade, as Cuba calls it, from the United States has been ongoing. In fact, it's much harsher now than it was for many, many years. Yet, that is something that you probably won't be able to change. How can the Cuban government, or what can the Cuban government do to convince its citizens to not want to leave on your own merits, not something that depends on the United States? Because if that's the case, uh, you could I, give up? I think you're right. There's nothing in the horizon that tells us that the U.S. economic policy to try to punish Cuba and to make life as difficult as possible for the Cuban people is going to change in the near future. The current government doesn't seem inclined in that direction in any way. So it is clear for us, and our government and our president has been very clear on that, that we need to build our own development. We need to solve our economic problems, stabilize our economy, achieve prosperity, and make life here so that Cubans find that their future and their possibilities of improving their living standards is within the country. It's a difficult task. No developing country has achieved it. We think that we can. I've spoken to Cubans who support the revolution. I'm not talking about opponents who, who, who say that they want to, to, to return to a capitalist society. But even people who support a, a socialist system tell me that they believe that this country needs to open up more, be more pluralistic, uh, both ideologically and economically. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Our government is clear. Our government uh, is convinced that we need to open the economy. And our constitution, the one we adopted in 2019, offers that opportunity of different actors of the economy. We're doing it on a step-by-step -step basis, incorporating new actors. You must have read, or one must have seen, that there's the new small, medium-sized enterprises uh, that have been established in Cuba in the past six months, over 2,000 of them. Those were actors that didn't exist in Cuba in the past. And the relationship between those, which are private, small and medium-sized enterprises, but also state-owned, the relationship between them has to grow, has to be regulated. Uh, a framework and a blueprint needs to be established for them to grow. But that doesn't stop us. And we also believe that we need more discussion, a more open discussion in Cuba, of different sectors of society and of different generations. And we've said that and it's being done. What we're not ready to do is to sacrifice a socialist system in Cuba. What we're not ready to do is to give an opening for those who want to sabotage a system that for Cubans ensures independence, social justice, and the possibility of our country to give opportunities to all, not just for the few and a system that protects Cuba from the control of transnational corporations or what happens in the government, which is a problem that you face all over the world, including our region. Going back to the pressures uh, from the United States government, the embargo, the sanctions, and possibly the exclusion from the Summit of the Americas, one could argue that Cuba hasn't made it very easy for the Biden administration either. Uh, to, to ease some of those sanctions. Would your government consider, for example, giving an amnesty to some of those people who were incarcerated after the uprising in July last year? It, As a it, symbol. It, it, it would be strange for the Biden administration to claim that Cuba has not been helpful or easy. The U.S. government unilaterally stopped implementing the migratory agreements. The U.S. government unilaterally has imposed over 240 coercive measures against Cuba. Some of them very drastic, like trying to deprive Cuba from the supply of oil. 
uh, interrupting remittances that are needed by the people. Stop Title III of, of Helms Burden. Uh, persecuting governments and, and pressuring governments that accept Cuban medical cooperation. All of this has been done unilaterally on the basis of false pretenses proclaimed by the Trump administration. The current government does not repeat or does not give credit to any of those pretexts used by the Trump administration, yet it continues to apply the same policy. If all these actions were absolutely unilateral, why would it be on Cuba's side to try to make concessions for the U.S. to do the correct thing? The policy of the U.S. against Cuba in economic terms today is nothing short of criminal. It's a criminal policy to punish the livelihoods of people. During COVID, as a result of that policy, many people died that should not have died because we had the medical capability on normal conditions to face that reality. Many people died that should not have died, not only of COVID, but of all other chronic diseases, I would say. So why would Cuba have to make concessions for the U.S. to stop applying a policy that is criminal and that is clearly unfair? What if, uh, for example, Donald Trump were to be reelected? It's not as far-fetched as it may sound right now. What is Cuba going to do then? It's a reality that we face and we'll continue to do what we're doing. What's the difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden for Cuba today? Ask the people of Cuba in the street if there is a difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. For them, it's the same. Perhaps, but record numbers of your citizens are leaving the country. They are tired. They've been hearing for 61 years that they have to resist fatherland or death. Some people say it's just too long to wait. It's a very unfair situation. But is it correct? If you look at the nature and the origin of the policy of the United States against Cuba, it says to make life as unbearable as possible, to create a situation of want so that people rebel against the government. Is that correct? Is that right? We won't change the policy of the United States against Cuba. Nothing that we do, nothing that we do will change the policy. It's written in law. It's in the Helms Burden Law. It is the law of the land of the United States. No amnesty. No action taken by Cuba is going to change that. It is a unilateral position of the U.S. government based on the power is, and might is right. And Cuba cannot change that regardless of what we do. You're sure about that? I'm sure about that. There won't be any change in the U.S. regardless of what Cuba does. History has shown that. Short of a more pluralistic uh, political system, a multi-party system. And it, who says that is in the interest of the United States? Some of the best allies are the United States are flagrant violators of human rights, totally undemocratic, some of the best allies. There's no record, there's no record today and there's no record in history that human rights, pluralistic societies or democracy are truly a priority of the U.S. government. There's no record to support that notion whatsoever. Finally, I'd like to ask you, what would you say to President Biden if you had him on the phone right now about the fact that it uh, doesn't want to invite Cuba to the summit of the Americas when that was one of the things that the vast majority of the countries of the region fought for for so many years? The, I would say, I doubt that he would speak with me, but I would say that if you're going to call it a summit, you can call it a summit of a part of the Americas, but you cannot call it a summit of the Americas if you exclude some. You should not fear 
having frank dialogue, even when there are differences. And there are differences in the region. And there are problems, immense problems in our regions that the countries need to talk about. The countries in the region are claiming that it be an inclusive summit and that Cuba be included. The U.S. should pay attention to it. Mr. Fernandez de Cosillo, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.